Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And our goal today, as is every podcast, to share with you at least one proven business practice that will help you build a more sustainable and a more profitable purpose-driven company. She's a very, very special lady. Number one word I think of her is intense. I think talented. I also think passionate. And so you're going to get to know Natalie Furness, who is the uh, VP in the chief legal office area of Nationwide. So I want to make sure I get your title right. So if you would, Natalie, as part of your uh, introduction and talking to our audience, make sure we get the whole title because there's a there's a lot going on there at Nationwide. So first of all, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, Ed. Uh, It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you, and I'm honored to uh, spend this time with you today and with your followers. My title is Senior Vice President of the Property Casualty Legal Team at Nationwide. And so I lead the legal team that supports our entire property casualty business. And that's a significant portion of the business, right? That's one of your biggest parts of the organization. It, It is. It is. So when I see Peyton Manning on TV, Is he focused on PNC or do we hear him talking about all aspects of Nationwide? You actually hear him talking about all aspects of Nationwide. So some of the marketing you may see uh, most recently, Peytonville, the ads with uh, Peyton and and Brad, you know, they'll talk about some of the financial products, retirement planning products that are available in addition to our solutions to protect your home auto business. So he is, uh, I guess what we call full coverage, uh, represents all of our uh, brands. Well, I tell you what, what a guy. He and Brad both do such a nice job of capturing the spirit of what I've come to realize at Nationwide. It's just a it's a it's a wonderful organization. I grew up as a farm boy and farm bureau and so I've kind of been exposed to Nationwide as long as I can remember and that's a long time when you're my age. When did you first become aware of Nationwide? You know, I'll tell you at the age of 16, when I had my driver's license and needed insurance for the first time, interestingly enough, that was the company my mom was with. And, you know, we went down to her agent and I was added to a policy. And so they've been my insurance company for all of my, you know, early young adult years and my entire adult life. Uh, But professionally, I I began doing a little bit of work with Nationwide when I was in private practice in in my law firm, which is uh, where I spent a bulk of my professional career prior to coming to Nationwide. So they were a client. So I've known them as a, you know, as their corporate lawyer, one of their corporate lawyers. I've known them as a member and uh, I've known them as a client. That's interesting. Now, uh, you're from Fairfield County originally, and and I uh, like me. I mean, I, I I don't think of you as a farm girl as such, but but you you're not from the if you will the, uh, the the city of Columbus. And so, how does a girl from Fairfield County, Lancaster area, get to to be where you are today? 
Yeah, no, uh, I appreciate that. And you're right. You know, I, I didn't grow up on a farm, Ed, but I grew up in a very rural area. I grew up outside Lancaster, Ohio, yeah. very rural, blue collar, a lot of great, hardworking people. Um, and so I, too, by the way, grew up with an appreciation for agricultural communities, even though, again, I, I did not grow up on a farm myself. But, you know, the county fair, the crop seasons, yeah. uh, you know, the, the importance of your livestock, you know, those were all things that I grew up around and mattered. And some of those core values, frankly, are, are part of I think what helped get me to where I am today, the, you know, up with the sun kind of mentality, yeah. thinking yeah. hard work, good people who take care of each other. So a lot of that really is interwoven into who I am. Quite honestly, I could tell you, Ed, in response to your question, good luck being in the right place at the right time. And, and those things certainly played into where I am today. But it'd be a bit of a disservice, really. And it wouldn't reflect my gratitude if I if I left out the fact that there were a heck of a lot of people who helped me to get to where I am today. Uh, I had a hardworking, passionate, loving single mother who was busy raising a bunch of kids. And we lived intermittently in periods of poverty. But but by golly, she was going to do what she needed to do to make certain that her children understood what their future could be. And, and she made a lot of sacrifices and decisions that helped me to be able to put my education first. There were people in our church community who helped to sponsor and support me. I, I to this day, and you may laugh, there was a woman in our church who, when I graduated from college, or excuse me, high school, she came up to us after service one day and said, you know, Natalie, I've watched you. I've watched you grow and your mother raising you. And I can't do a lot to help you. But if you'd allow me, I'd really love to write notes back and forth. And in each month, maybe just send you $10 for pizza money while you're oh away my. at college. And it was so touching. And wow. you, know, you may look at it and say $10, but I will tell you, she sent me $10 every single month. And there are months when you're a poor college kid that that $10 was exactly the pizza <laughs> that I was able to buy for, for the day. So from things as little as that to um, really some, you know, really great gestures. And like I said, a lot of hard work for my mom. I was able to get some direction and focus and figure out what I might want to do as I grew up, if you will, yeah. and, and just met a whole series of people like that who helped pull for me at times when I'm not certain I even pulled for myself enough. Well, I think we all have those moments where we have doubts or uh, don't necessarily see ourselves as being capable of what others see in us. And it's great to have those people in our lives that, that can do that for us. Do you remember when you decided or thought you wanted to become an attorney? Yeah, I do. It was the minute that I realized my plans for medical school were going to fail because I kept uh, not doing so well in my science courses. Plan B. There you go. I flipped that switch pretty quickly after my freshman year of college and realized it was the better fit. And I think anybody who knows me knows you said intense earlier. And I thought I probably have to own that. That's that's probably pretty accurate and probably was one of the traits that made going into uh, law a good fit for me. In fairness, I need to tell the audience, uh, Natalie is not anywhere near my age. But I'm not going to ask her how old she is because that would be, that would be ungentlemanly of me to do that. So I'm not going to ask that. But she's a, she is not anywhere near the 67 years I've been on this world. But I will also tell the audience that she's one of these individuals that when I'm around her and when I'm in meetings with her, 
I'm intimidated by making a mistake in front of her because if if I say something dumb or stupid, she's not going to say it's dumb or stupid, but I don't ever want her thinking that I am dumb or stupid. This is a very talented person that we have on as our guest today. So I, I just, she's intense and she is really bright and smart. So where did you do your undergrad? I went to the Ohio State University. So I'm a proud okay. Buckeye, not too far okay. from home. You know, and Ed, kind of back to some of our prior conversation, I ended up at Ohio State because my mother, who I mentioned previously, she had a passion to make certain that her children could could receive the education she thought that they needed. And right. she sought out job opportunities at universities because she knew that uh, And my junior year of high school, she was successful in getting a job at the Ohio State University. And so while I'm a very proud Buckeye and thankful for the wonderful education I received, there was this moment when I realized that's it. There are no like searching for a college. I am going to be a Buckeye. <laughs> it was a fate accompli, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Was. Well, that's cool. Um, well, okay. So you, you went there and then where'd you do your, uh, your graduate work for your law degree? Yeah. I, I attended law school at Capital University also here in, in Columbus, Ohio. Yep. Yeah. And then you went to Bricker and Eckler straight out of college or what'd you do? Yeah, no, I, I worked there my second year of law school and I did, did my clerkship there and then began my private practice as soon as I graduated from law school. So I spent about the first 15, 16 years of my career with Bricker. And that's a, a very storied firm. That's a, is it John W. Bricker? Am I saying that right? Yeah, well, you're testing me on the middle of this. Yeah, I, I think, I think, but, but was he not a governor? Or senator? senator, yeah, senator, senator John Bricker, yes, and John Eckler was the other named partner. Okay, and then you have offices in D.C. I think, or did, or uh, at one point. You know, the the geographic footprint for Bricker and Eckler is primarily uh, within the state of Ohio in terms of our physical offices. However, okay. we had attorneys and staff kind of dispatched to serve frankly, throughout the United States. A lot of the the litigation work I did, for example, during my time there, while I was physically located here in Ohio, we had cases from all across the country. So pretty strong lobbying arm that would have touched on D.C. as well. Did you ever think about leadership when you were in private practice, when you were at Bricker? Did, Did you guys ever talk about leadership or was it only when you got to Nationwide that became an interest for you? You know, that it's really interesting you say that because there, there's a market difference. I don't want to say that in the law firm setting, we didn't talk or think about leadership, but it certainly wasn't with the intentionality that I see it nationwide and in other corporate America type settings. And the style was really different. I mean, there there is something about law firms, even law firms that value people like Bricker and Eckler. I, I would you know, advocate for for that attribute of the firm any day. But there's something inherent in the way private law firm practice has been established that there's a bit of a throw you in the deep end of the pool and you either swim or you sink. And it may make a lot of sense in terms of their business model. And it's probably changing and evolving even as we speak. But Ed, certainly we didn't devote the intentional time and focus to leadership development in the way that I see we do it nationwide at the firm. You know, I had somebody once describe to me that professional services organizations, Natalie, are a confederation of Indian tribes. They're not a nation. They are not a united organization as such, but they have these different, they're all Indians, but they all talk the a different, slightly different languages and have different rituals and rites. And, and, um, and, and so consequently, they're not thinking as much as a team. Mm-hmm. 
as a nationwide would. And I thought that was fairly accurate from my whole experiences with like CPA firms, law firms, architectural firms and such. Right. You know, you're, you're unified as a brand and yet that sometimes is where it ends. And you yeah. do have these different fiefdoms that will operate on their own. You even have individuals within those fiefdoms that depending upon the strength of management or, or frankly, the intimacy of the professional relationships that have developed within the firm, you know, your your success in following a North Star and all being aligned together can really be challenged because each individual person within each of those fiefdoms or tribes that you've described uh, sometimes is really incentivized to right. have their voice heard over everybody else's and, and it yeah. makes alignment challenging or even go their own direction. Right. right? And, right. and devil, devil may care. If, I don't care if you don't like it and I don't care if it's not necessarily good for another part of the organization, I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, was that one of the reasons you left that private practice and, and, and came to a nationwide or was there, why the move? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I wish that I could tell you that there was some brilliant, you know, five, 10 year plan that I had mapped out. And this was always part of that. It really wasn't. You know, I was very happy in my practice, successful in the practice. I was a partner in the litigation group and enjoyed the cases I was handling. I had had the opportunity to lead our recruiting or our hiring function for the firm, which I really enjoyed. That connected me to, to people and law students, people who I felt I could make um, add value to and, and I could be part of bringing people into our firm who added value. So all told, no, I was really, you know, swimming along happy as a duck in my private practice. And it was just one of those recruiting calls you field. You're not even certain why you field it. And it hits you at a point in time in life and in your career where this particular call, it just started to speak to me. And I wish I could tell you that there was something more uh, calculating about it than that. But truly, it hit me at a point in time in life where I thought, you know, there are skills that I know that I possess, but I'm not exercising them every day. They atrophy a bit. And maybe I'm ready for something just radically different. And it started (laughs) as a notion. And once that seed was planted and the more conversations I had with folks and the more I understood what it would mean to make this kind of transition, the more passion I developed for it and the more excitement I had. So it was really kind of serendipitous. I wish people could see your your face right now as she's <laughs> talking about this because I tell you guys, she'd get she'd ready to put me in coach. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go hit something. I'm ready to play the game. <laughs> so what's been the biggest surprise making the move? What's been the thing that and it could be good, it could be bad. It might even not be you know qualitative in that sense, but it's just been a big surprise that this isn't what I was expecting. Well I I don't know if I would put it in the category of an utter surprise because, you know, on the surface, one should be able to look at the size and the makeup of the two different organizations and obviously draw a lot of contrasts. Right. Um, so it's not an utter surprise. And yet the depth to which this matters has been a surprise. And that is just the the what it means to communicate in an organization <laughs> this large to stay aligned. I mean, some of the things, Ed, you and I have talked about in our right. group meetings, the intentionality with which you have to decide what is your purpose, what is your focus, the frequency of the communication, so that everybody, top to bottom, understands 
what your vision is and how you're going to get there. The law firm, again, for better or for worse, perhaps it didn't always focus, and law firms in general, I think, suffer from this, on uh, a really crisp and clear strategy, but kind of all went your own way, powering on, and you got there somehow. And you could quickly make decisions. Uh, it, was, it was somewhat nimble in some respects because of the size and, and uh, the, the, the power that you could wield to, to make that change, for better or for worse. In an organization of this size, you just can't take for granted how much communication and clarity of purpose and focus and vision you need to, one, achieve, but then how you communicate that out throughout the organization and get buy-in really requires a lot of effort and intentionality. And just the depths, it's the depths to which you really, I find you need to over-index on all of that in order to be successful and make sure you're rowing in the same direction. That's That continues to be a surprise for me. There's a bias that highly skilled and highly trained executives have that I shouldn't need to do a lot of this. There's a bias that it can't be that simple. I think that's one of the reasons that you see professional services firms with gals and guys who, you know, have two or three sets of letters behind their names that tend to poo-poo the importance of overcommunication, that 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 tend to miss not comprehend how simplicity makes a difference, how consistency tends to be a, a real lever of, of power if you want to use it. So I find that that goes on. And so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear you talk the way you talk. Mm-hmm. Have you had mentors that in terms of specifically and how you manage and lead that, that really have played a, a big role in your career? In terms of professional mentors, you know, I don't know, Ed. Um, I'd like to, again, I'd like to say yes and, and give you a list of a lot of people who I really learned a lot of key leadership skills right. from. But I, I, I really, if I think about this, I would say I've learned the most from, and, and they wouldn't maybe view themselves as mentors. I've learned a lot from the people who report to me or are part of the team. So not necessarily someone who I'm theoretically looking up to on the or right. on the part, if you will. Right. Being able to really observe and capture the best of what somebody who might be my peer or who is even on my team managing maybe at a, at a different level or on a smaller scale, but has the ability to really bring to bear some fantastic leadership traits. I love, I love watching that. And I've learned from, I would say, a handful of folks who are just really great leaders who might be peers to me or, or even on the team. One other example, though, that really sticks out to me in this, definitely, I, I, these folks wouldn't consider themselves mentors, but I've learned invaluable lessons. I reflect on some of the amazing educators that my children in particular have had. And with, with at least one of our children, we've spent a lot of time with some of their teachers, you know, just because of their learning style and, and, right. and learning needs. And to watch the way a really passionate and informed educator can take an entire classroom of individuals and know what the entire group needs, but also be able to drill down, focus on, and really know, in this case, my child, what makes them tick, how they respond to things, how they're going to motivate, and to do it with this true passion and empathy to ensure that they're successful. I come away from those exchanges and I think, Our world needs more of that. I need more of that. How can I do that? And and I don't know if 
teachers think of themselves as leaders in the sense that you and I are talking about it, Ed. But when done right and done with the passion and commitment that I've seen with my own children, wow, I think of extraordinary leadership. Oh, yeah. In those settings. So that is an area where I've drawn a lot of inspiration are the educators for my children. Well, it's funny you uh, mentioned that. Our listeners, if they are regular listeners, know I had on recently Dr. John, uh, Jim Mahoney. And Jim's got a book out, and he's formerly uh, the head of Battelle for Kids mm-hmm. and a uh, very successful school superintendent in his own right. But, but his book is entitled, or going to be entitled, I believe, If You Can't Teach, You Can't Lead. Mm-hmm. So he sees a direct correlation to uh, being an effective leader and the ability to be a highly effective teacher. So they're they're linked in his mind. And I, I think you're you're validating that. Well, it's interesting when you say that, Ed, I was thinking, you know, everybody knows the, uh, you know, of the poem, everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. And then I yeah. think, again, that's true. And then I think as an adult and everything I needed to, re- to be reminded of, I learned again when I sent my child to kindergarten. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. It's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been doing that. I haven't been doing that. <laughs> it's, it's painful when they hold that mirror up and you got to look at it. What would you say has been the biggest change in your leadership over the last three, four, five years uh, as you've settled into the role you're in? What? How are you different today than you might have been? Mm. I think my willingness to not just accept, I think I was always accepting of people's different differing strengths but to really be in position to truly value and help individuals to magnify their individual strengths. And and so I I would go back to, you know, our discussion about the difference between private practice and and a law firm or professional services organization. Mm -hmm. There's a a premium placed on being the best, whatever that means. You know, the, the, you know, your case is inside and out. You can write better than anybody else. The measure of value is usually on being the best, whatever right. that is. Right. And, and we all know that that's not realistic. You know, we, we human beings have different strengths. I now think I am better at not looking for or demanding or setting an expectation that everyone be the best, but really seeking out in others what is their best. How do yeah. I help them fulfill and that that trait or strength? And then build around it in these other areas. Somebody else I spoke to recently, I forget who, but he said his job was to fill other people's sales. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically lift them in some way, um, improve their ability to progress and move forward. And and I, that that sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you think of yourself as a, a servant leader? I think at the end of the day, honestly, the answer is Ed, yes. But I don't like to think of myself that way. And he, and here's why. There are so many books or discussions or articles on what it means to be a servant leader. Yeah. And I'll tell you, at times, I find they just over-index into this really insincere space, you know, as yes. though a leader yes. is just this, you know, Joan of Arc or very, very self-sacrificing individual who, by the time you're done reading some of the books who focus on servant leadership, you'd come away with the impression that the only way to really be a good servant leader is to, you know, forego water, food, clothing, and shelter <laughs> so you can have it. 
And I, of course, am being extreme. I'm being extreme, right? But I love but it. I read some of these and listen, and it just starts to fall flat for me because I feel like it's become another branding thing, a, a social media thing for a lot of people. And right. I don't know how sincere it is. And, and, and uh, so there you go. There's my cynical lawyer side coming out right That's now. Right. Here I am. No, I love it. I love it. Sincerity of folks. That's not the point. At, at its core, yes. If you care okay. about people, if you care about people improving the organization, then absolutely. I would put myself in that camp. I don't spend a lot of time, though, thinking about the term servant leadership. No, I think you are that, but I don't necessarily see yourself being defined by that. So I, I'm with you. When I thought about the questions I would ask you, I didn't e- even begin to think about them until just now and listening to your responses. So I'm going to ask one. I'm, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball at you. Sure. You strike me as not, not ever having been a victim of your circumstances, that you have used whatever circumstances in which you found yourself as a either a validation that you were on the right track or that you needed to do something different to get moving in a direction that you wanted. How accurate is that, the, what I just described? I think it's pretty accurate, Ed. I, I think you had to hit the nail on the head. And as I'm sitting here thinking about what you've just said, I thought, now I also, these kind of conversations, they're really great. They also serve as self-reflection. You know, I, I feel like we're having a, a moment that helps me to just reflect a little bit on on myself. It's going to help me grow. All right. Well, thank you. I, that's nice of you to say that. So, Natalie, with, with all the things you've done and not being a victim of your own circumstances, whatever they were, do you feel like uh, you, you feel like glass ceilings are an issue or not? I certainly think they exist, but I don't think that they are insurmountable. I think it takes collective action and intention, though. I think people have to engage in some introspection, and that's on the individual level, corporate level, government level. You know, we need to look at what are the root causes behind the experiences of women and other minorities or underrepresented groups and really give thought to uh any types of barriers, be it a glass ceiling or otherwise, that are standing in the way of allowing, and again, so I'll speak for women, allowing, you know, women to really have opportunity to show what they're made of, to contribute, to add value, and to demonstrate their leadership. So I, I think it exists. I'd like to think we're getting better. I'd like to think that my experience, you know, is, is an example that you can seek to achieve and be successful in, in your career and profession. Uh, but we've got to be mindful about it. And we have to have honest conversations about what perhaps is inhibiting the success of other women or, or others who are not typically getting the experiences and opportunities that we see have been in the, the realm of, excuse me, white men historically in our in our country. All right. So I appreciate that you've probably, I think the way I would describe it is that you've not given yourself the option of not being successful for whatever reason gets thrown in your way. You're going to, you're going to tackle it. You're going to figure out a way to overcome that. But you also feel like that, that we still got to find ways to help others be able to have experiences like you've had and perhaps with make it more normal that those would be the, uh, I guess what you'd say, the likely occurrence, correct? Yeah, correct. I would never say, well, look, I did it, so it's not a problem. Why can't you? Yeah. I think there's more to it than that. Yeah. 
That's very eloquently said. So I appreciate the way you've just verbalized that. All right. We're out of time. So that means I've got to ask our final question of this time together, which is one I ask all of our guests because I think they've earned the right to do that. So if I'm a CEO, if I'm a president, if I'm an owner, if I'm a C-suite executive, what's that one piece of advice that you would say, I don't care what kind of role you're in or who you are, you've got to do this if you're going to be able to run a more successful organization. What's that one piece of advice you would give them, Natalie? I would say you you cannot assume that everybody in your organization, no matter how large nor how small, intuitively understands your strategy, the direction you're going, and that you have to take the time to make certain, whether it's yourself or the others you have around you in the organization, are committed to helping your employees, your associates along on that journey. How does their role, what you're asking them to do, connect and tie into your strategy? So I I think I see a a lot of folks who, once they are at the CEO level or senior executive level, live in the world of strategy. But are they also spending time thinking about how that strategy is being translated to and throughout the organization so that everybody understands? I think people at their heart, they want to help and support and stand behind the strategy, but I'm not certain that it's always so clear the how and that uh, that we're connecting those dots for people throughout, throughout our companies. I love it. It's great advice. She's Natalie Furness from Nationwide. If people want to reach out to you, Natalie, and learn more about who you are or or how you've become the leader you've become, what's the best way for them to reach you? By email is perfect. And and I can give that to you if you want to edit. Please. Fernie N2 at nationwide.com. So that's F-U-R-N-I-N2 at nationwide.com. And if you have reason to speak with Natalie, you'll enjoy it. I can guarantee you that you would enjoy any interaction with this young lady. Thanks for being our guest on the Ed Epley Experience, Natalie. I hope to talk to you again here soon. As well. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.